uh, we're going to transition our time to God's Word, and uh, I wanted to conclude this series that we're in this week, but there was just too much to put into one message, and I'm setting you up in a way that says I'm warning you we're going a little longer this morning, all right? So uh, that's my warning, so if you have to get up and go, um, man, you just don't know when we're going to be here till. well, we can't be here past 1030, right? We know that. Are you awake this morning? All right, good. Well, we, uh, we're finishing this series called False, How to Discern uh, Truth or Falsehood in, in Light of What We Know as True. And I f- figured the best way to end this series was to land in what the Bible is, this book, what its truth is, how we can glean from it, what it is that this book does. And so we've said all through this series, these two premises kind of dictate, guide us, if you will, that... These two things must be true if we're really going to understand truth. The one is that God is for God. He is passionate about himself. He is consumed with himself. He is zealous for himself and jealous for all of us as his people. But he cares about what he wants. And he has designed the world in a certain way that, that worships him and that we can glean from and obey. And there's commandments. There's guiding principles of life. He has created us so he knows what's best for us. So he is for himself and he has designed the world to work a certain way, and he has given us this book, this, his word, to live in that way. There's rules, order, right things, truth. So with that, I want to uh, launch us out of one verse this morning, if you will, in Hebrews 4.12. We know it well, but I want to uh, use that as a launching point in the next two weeks to talk about what the word itself does. I'm going to read one verse. Uh, some of us know it well, and I'll actually read around it. Just leave that up there. I'm going to read verses 11 and 13. I'm going to talk about context in it, but Hebrews 4.12 is the verse. I'll back up just one. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And here's a verse. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. With that, I'll ask that we pray. You pray silently. Ask God to speak to your heart, and I'll pray for us collectively. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we worship you. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness. We thank you for truth. We thank you that There is power in truth, and that there is power in the name of Jesus. Power to break every chain, every stronghold, every addiction, every everything we struggle with by salvation through Christ alone. Father, that if we believe in our heart that He is Lord and confess with our mouth, we can be saved. And so help us this morning. Show us your word, show us truth, humble our hearts so that we might see you and know you, that we might experience you. And know what the truth is. We praise you for Jesus. He gives us life in his name. And all God's people said. So I want to show you something this morning. Uh, in, in a way of show and tell, I want to show you something. It's very quite, quite common, very familiar to us. It's not new to us, but I wonder if we really know what this is. What this book is. We, we revere it in the church and we think about it and we read from it every Sunday. But do you know what this book does? 
Do you have a relationship with it in that I understand what this book does, that this is all things truth, and that I know what this does for me, for my soul, what it does for me and my relationship with God. My goal today is very simple, and this today and next week as well, is that you would revere this book in such a way that it would determine every chorus of action in your life. That every thought or idea or opinion of the world would be funneled through the lens of this book. That everything you think about, everything you believe in, everything you see in the world, all this, this chaos that swirls around, that everything would go through the lens of this book. That you would filter and funnel it through the lens of this book. That you would know what this book does in order that you could do that. And so this morning I want to show you what it does. And you've heard this before. I've said it before up here. This phrase, this book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Now, we know, as we've said that, that's been that that phrase has been attributed to many modern day preachers. I have written it in people's Bibles when I give them a Bible. Some have said, you know, these preachers have said it. Well, where did it originate? It really goes back to Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. He wrote that and he penned that, but he himself gave that uh, attribution or that uh, he attributed it to uh, John Bunyan. He said, well, that phrase came from him. He said, that's who penned that phrase. But if I look at this phrase, I have to say, well, no man, it's a great phrase. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. I have to even go further back and say, I think that could be from the apostle John in, in his letters. In the first letter he wrote in chapter two, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Well, where would John get an idea like that about the power of the Bible? I think he got it from his Lord and Savior, Jesus, who he walked with as his disciple. After all, he followed and learned from Jesus. And what did Jesus say about the Bible? What did he believe about the Bible, the Word of God? He knows, he, we know that he was the living Word. We know that he was the manifestation of God's revelation. And not only was Jesus a manifestation, the living word, but in human flesh, he was obedient to God's commandments. He lived out the Old Testament scriptures. He taught from the Old Testament scriptures. His whole life was about the Old Testament scriptures and the commandments. His will was to do the will of the Father. He did it perfectly, totally sinless, airless. He fought off temptation with it, and he came to fulfill the law. He said that. So I believe it was Jesus who would say, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. But you see, we know it's not just a book. We know it's the very words of the living God, whose revelation to us. It's more than just words on a page. You could take these books and destroy them, and it wouldn't destroy the word of God. It is living and eternal. It is the word of God that keeps us from sin, or sin in our hearts that keeps us from this word. And so let's not even just attribute it to Jesus in his earthly life. Let's even go back further. Where does this originate from? What did God tell Adam? Go all the way back to Genesis. What did God tell Adam in the garden after he created him? Remember, Eve is not created here. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, he said it this way. God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Seems pretty simple, right? God gives a command. And his word says, that will keep you from sin. My commandments will keep you from sin. Well, we know the rest of the story. 
the rest of the account. Adam, through his own desire and his own pride and his own fleshly desire, he goes after what God has told him not to. And God's word could have kept him from sin, and yet it's his own sin that kept him from God's word. And that's exactly how it is for us today. It's how it's been since one, day one. Sin will keep us from this book, or this book will keep us from sin. However you want to say that. And so this morning, I want to tell you seven things about, I actually want to just tell you three or four, depending on how much time we have. I want to, in the next two weeks, tell you and show you seven things that this book is. As we read earlier, as this launching point, Hebrews 4.12, and I want to give you its context, and then I want to just look at the phrasing in this verse to show us these seven things. You see, the author of Hebrews here, and we studied this a while ago, is talking about entering rest in chapter 4. The hope of heaven, the promise of eternity, the thing that you and I want so desperately to know and hope for, that this is not all there is to life, that there's something after. And the author of Hebrews is talking about entering that rest, the promise of that rest, the hope of heaven, a final resting place after death. And he is talking in previous chapters that that is made possible because of what Jesus has done at the cross. What he has done is our high priest. In the Old Testament, they had priests, their intercessors to God. Jesus is our intermediary. He's a high priest. He has made the way to God through his death and resurrection. The veil was torn. And so the author is saying, because of Jesus, we have that promise. Because of his death and resurrection, we are allowed by faith to enter that rest. And we know that that promise is for the one who accepts that by faith. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't please God well enough. It is by faith that you are saved by his grace alone through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the saving faith. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, the promise is affirmed. But with the warning, if you look at that verse... It says, be careful because some have failed to reach it. Some have heard about it as you have heard about it, but some have failed to reach it because of disobedience to God's word. They haven't really submitted themselves to God. They haven't really surrendered their life. They haven't really trusted by faith in what God says. And that's the premise there. That's the distinguishing mark. There's kind of this distinguishing thing about those who believe and those who don't. And that's laid out by proof, if you will, for true believers who continue in faith and obedience. Believers are those who have truly been saved that say, you know what, I trust God's word. I'm not perfect at it. We'll talk about that. But by faith, I know that Jesus came to die for me, a sinful person, and he is a holy God. His judgment and wrath is on my head. I need Jesus in my life when the Spirit comes into my life. I want to please God through being obedient. I will never be able to do that perfectly, but I want to do it through faith and obedience. And verse 6 comes along in chapter 4 and says, The promise is good because of Jesus, but again, take heed. Some will not enter because of disobedience. Verse 11 repeats this and says to us, Let us strive. You see a human effort, but there it's really just a spiritual effort there to enter that rest so that no one would fall because of disobedience. Rest, then, is for the believers, the ones who live out the Bible, who live out the Word of God, who desire to do that. John says the commandments aren't a burden, they're a joy. We should desire to please God. And it's with that background that Hebrews 4.12, that it comes about what the Word is, what it does. 
And so here are the first four, if we can get through all of them. The Bible is these, in the next two weeks, seven things. But here are the first four. And they're all from a phrase or a word in Hebrews 4.12. And the first one is this. It is the source of truth. These aren't human words. These are God's words. John 17, 17, we know that well. Jesus prays his high priestly prayer, and he says, Sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. We, why do we go to the Bible? Because it tells us about God. It shows us who he is, what he wants. Anything we know about him is from this book. Anything you think about God and you're thinking certain things, and some of them might not be right things, but anything that you know about the true God, his character is from this book. You learn it from accounts with people in human history. You learn about his attributes in here. Anything you know that is good for your soul and life and godliness is in this book. It's what is right. It's how we ought to live. There's instruction, how we ought to worship, how we ought to please God. And I've said numerous times, that's all you have is this book. All we have. People have died, shed blood over this book, protecting it, protecting its, its doctrines, its truth. When the church has gone wayward and when the world has tried to infiltrate it, people have given their life. Because as I said, this is all we have, this book. What do I mean by all this? Even, even us in this room, we have different ideas about God, different views crafted by God, some that are kind of infused with our opinions, or even what we, some of us, what we want to think about God. And that's what we've been studying this whole series. Sometimes we come, like, this is what I want to believe about God, but is it true? We have doctrines, traditions, religions, Many of these things formed in our own mind and heart. Let me give you an This is just one example. Think of marriage in our culture right now. This is just one of so many examples. Many people have just determined their own view of what marriage is. Maybe some of us have an old school view of marriage. Some of us a new postmodern, whatever that is, view of marriage. And if I sat down and I asked all of you individually, if we just one by one, define marriage for me, I'd probably get several different answers. I don't know how many. But if I lined us all up and I said, define marriage for me, I would get several answers because it's been crafted. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to go into all the details, but my point is this. Who is right with all those definitions? Am I right because I'm the pastor? Are you right because you have a better grip on culture and its evolving nature? Who is right? My point is we all have this book. There's one truth. So my opinion doesn't matter. Your experience, your love for other friends doesn't matter. Your, your own version of truth doesn't matter. The Bible is the only thing that matters when you sit down and define marriage. And so will it be done from that book if you give the definition? Now, some in our culture would say, well, the Bible isn't, it's, it's first century, you have to understand. These are historical things. It's not really relevant for our culture. So, so maybe God is still saying different things about that, and we're evolving in that. The rules are different now. I believe God is okay with this. Listen to this amazing truth from Rosaria Butterfield. And if you don't know that name, you should write it down right now. Rosaria Butter, Butterfield, it would be good to read her stuff on what she says about homosexuality. She's a, a former uh, homosexual who's like, Jesus came into her life and showed her that there was something better and different in that. And she says this, if God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, 
then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. She says, if that's, if that's the source of truth and that has the right, doesn't matter what I think, to interrogate my life and culture, not the other way around. The Bible has the power to do that as a source of truth. It is God who defines all things. To start to put definitions in our own hands on theological things or things of life and godliness is just plain arrogant. To say that we know better than God is just craziness. Now maybe you sit here today and you say, well, I don't know if I care what God says about all things. I don't know that I would really have a problem with what he says on a particular issue. I'm going to do what I want. But I can hardly believe that's true because you're here today. Something brought you to this place today. Something matters to each one of us when we come into this building about faith, about God. Something brought us here into this building. Now, perhaps fear drove you here. God's judgment. Maybe that's what brought you here today at 8.30. I don't know. Maybe duty brought you here. Obligation. Maybe I have to go to church. It's just my wife dragged me here. Maybe that's you. Maybe you came here today because you were serving somewhere in the nursery or in children's church or hospitality or greeting. You're serving somewhere. Maybe your childhood brought you here because I've always gone to church. That's just what I do. My parents raised me. We always went to church. Maybe that's what brought you here. Maybe your own pride brought you here. Maybe your own pride brings you into this building and says, well, I'm doing pretty good in my life. I'm going to church. I'm doing pretty well. Maybe that's what it is. Perhaps religion brought you here. Well, church just seems like the right thing to do. Perhaps sadness brought you here this morning. Perhaps sorrow. Perhaps your friends. I don't know. Whatever brought you here. But why are we here? I would argue that this book brings us here. Anything that we do that honors God is in this book. Without this book, many of us probably wouldn't and shouldn't. I don't know if I'd be here without this book, but I look at this book and I say, God tells us to come together. He comes, come together and worship. Come together, go together on mission. Draw yourselves into one another. Submit to one another. Serve each other. Love each other. And so that's why we come together, this book, so that we Come and worship and exalt the name of Jesus. Deepen our fellowship. Submit to the teaching of God's word. Submit to one another, to leaders, to serve together. All because of this book. Because this book shows us that Jesus leaps out of every page of this book. That's why we're here. It is a revelation of the Almighty God. It's a source of truth. It's the commandments of God. This book is the source of truth. That's the first one. The second one is this. It is a source of joy. If the word of God is mentioned in, in Hebrews 4.12, then so is this word, the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says that this book goes after our heart. It affects our heart. Whose heart wants to be anything except for joy-filled? We don't want to be sad as a people. We don't want to be miserable. We want joy, and this book goes after that. It produces that. It is the source of that. In John 15, Jesus talks about this. Some of us know this chapter well. If you hear my words, my truth, if you keep them, you abide in me and I in you. Joy is in you. I have said these things that your joy might be full, that it might be complete. That's why I've said these things. 
Luke 11.28 reminds us that those who hear and obey the word are blessed, happy, joyful. That word used in all those ways. Proverbs 8.34 tells us that happy or joyful are they that hear the word of God. Psalm 199.162 tells us that we rejoice at what? God's word. It gives us joy. It's the source of it. You study the word, you hear what it says, you draw out its principles, you obey those principles in your heart to obey them, and God pours out blessing and joy. Now this must be said. You can crank out any sort of obedience to the scriptures in every legalistic way, but if it wasn't from your heart, none of it would matter. You could do that. You could follow this this book to a T, And he would never give you the joy. Why? Because good deeds without a right heart doesn't count. The Bible talks about that too. Even our righteousness, the things that we try to do rightly out of this legalistic way, are filthy rags to God. Some of us do things for God and wonder, you might be sitting here, wonder why do I have no joy? Let me show you what I mean. The Bible talks about fruit. It talks about different kinds of fruit, and it talks about the fruit of spirit, and then it talks about this attitude stuff. And before there's ever fruit in your life from godliness or growth, whether that be evangelism or witnessing or drawing people to Christ or deepening an understanding of God's word or praise or worship or giving or trusting, all those things, before there's fruit on the outside that means anything, it's got to come from the fruit of the spirit on the inside. Before there's any of those external things, it comes from within by the fruit of the Spirit. Now listen to this. Action fruit, the things you do, the things that can be seen, the things that are visible, without attitude fruit, what you feel is pure legalism. Action fruit, the things that you do without attitude fruit, is pure legalism. We talked about truth and love last week. Truth without love is nothing. It's a Phariseeism. That's what it is. So it doesn't mean anything. So you do all these good things, and without the fruit inside, the attitude fruit, it won't matter. You can crack out all the stuff on the outside in obedience, and you can be totally obedient, and you'll never know joy. On the other hand, and here's the beauty of the gospel. We should celebrate this. If your heart is a heart of obedience and a heart of attitude, you get this. The amazing thing about God and his grace, you can fail on the outside, You can fail miserably, and God will give you joy because he sees the gracious, obedient spirit in your heart. That's what he is after. You could mess up, as many of us do, as I often do on the outside, and because he's good, he sees that your heart wants to please him, and you could screw it all up. Many of us in this church do that all the time when we walk into ministry, don't we? We screw it all up. But he sees your heart and says, that's what I'm after. That's my grace. So the promise is this. Study the Bible. Why? Number one, it's a source of truth. Number two, it's a source of rejoicing. I'll say this additionally. You say, hey, you know what? I appreciate what you're saying up there, Pastor Craig. Looks like you prepared well this morning. But I've got news for you. I study the Bible all the time. I study the Bible all the time. Maybe this is you. And I still got a lot of pain. You're talking about joy up there. I study the Bible all the time. And I've still got a lot of pain. I've got a lot of problems. It's just not enough. Well, I've got a verse for you. Thanks for bringing that up. I don't want to leave you hanging there. God doesn't tell you just exactly when you're going to get the joy. This is really important for us 
We live in a culture of instant gratification, instant fix. We've got a problem we want to fix. Give it to me, give it to me. I'm super sad. I just want joy. I'm struggling. I just want it to be fixed. And God doesn't tell you when he's going to give the joy. You might have to wait a little while. Look at John 16. He's looking at the disciples. You can go there if you want. You can, you can read it later. And he says, this is the part in the story where Jesus says, you know what? I'm leaving. And they're all sitting, sitting there moping because they have put everything into Jesus. All the eggs went into that basket, right? They left their trade. They went with him. He called them. They left everything and followed him. Jesus taught that way. You know, the rich young ruler comes to him. He says, I've kept all the commandments. There's an attitude action thing. And he says, go and sell all that you have to the poor and come follow me. I don't know if I could do that. These disciples have done that. They've left everything. And he comes to them and says, you know what, guys? This is it. This is the day. I'm gone now. I'm going to leave you. I have to go. That's the way it is. And they're like, what? What? See, they didn't understand all that time. But they're sitting there going, you're leaving? We gave everything to the ministry for the last three years, and you're just checking out? That's not what I signed up for. And you know what? They're sad. They're sorrowful. You know what Jesus says to them in verse 20 of John 16? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He didn't give them a time frame for that. He doesn't give us a time frame for that. In other words, you've got to realize sometimes there's going to be sorrow, I would say all the time, before there's ever going to be joy. In fact, you want to hear this? If you're ever really going to understand joy, there has to be sorrow. So when you know what it is, you see the difference. We understand joy because we've seen sorrow. We see the contrast. We live in the middle of that. There is a lot of sadness and pain in the world, and God just, just promises joy because of all that in spite of it. And this isn't happiness when life is good. This is the beauty of joy when it's really hard, and you notice that. And I think one of the reasons that God allows sorrow into our lives is so that we'll understand joy when it comes. And so he says, you're going to have to have patience and be faithful. You might be in sorrow in this world. I know believers that study God's word and they're struggling with depression and anxiety, and it's a hard struggle, and it's not this quick fix thing. There will be sorrow, but they can have joy in the midst of that struggle. All of us will have that until Jesus comes back. So we need to be patient and faithful. Listen, if you obey the word of God, he will give you joy. Maybe not instantaneously as you want it, but here's the beauty of God. Always when you need it. So why should I study the Bible? What should motivate me to Bible study? Number one, it's a source of truth. Number two, it's a source of joy. And I'll tell you, no matter what happens in my life circumstantially, when I run to this word, I leave with joy. I leave with hope beyond any circumstance. Number three, the Bible is a source of victory. Look what it says in Hebrews 4.12. The two-edged sword is referenced. This idea of sword or battle. This, this book is a weapon. I don't know about you, but I like to win. And I'm not like Charlie Sheening right now. I just, I like to win. I don't like to lose. I'm competitive. I like it. That's my nature. I coach boys basketball, Jeremiah's team yesterday, they won a game, they lost a couple, it was hard. I don't like that either. We're trying to encourage these young men, but I like to win. I'm competitive. I don't like to lose. I like to be on top of it. I see that in my own Christian life. I don't like to give an occasion for the adversary, the devil. I just don't like to do that. 
I don't like to have him have an advantage, as it says in Corinthians, over me. I don't like to see Satan victorious in my own life or in the church. I don't like to see the world master me. I don't like to see the flesh in my own life override my spirit. I want to win. I have a desire for victory. And God's promise tells me we are overcomers and victors in that. But from the moment to moment, I don't want that to happen in my own life. Just like I would say nobody wants to be miserable. We want joy. We want to be victors. And so there's no reason to give in to the enemy. And as you study the Bible, you find out that God's word becomes a source of victory. David said this in Psalm 119. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may what? Not sin against you. I have put that there as a weapon, source of victory over sin. And the word of God is taken in and it becomes a resource which why, by the Holy Spirit directs us. Now listening, listen to this. You have no way of preventing yourself from being led into sin unless the word of God is there so that the Holy Spirit can kick it into your conscious mind. You have no way of preventing sin and temptation to, to come into that and think that you could be a victor in that without having that word there so the Holy Spirit can bring it up. As a Christian, you'll never function on what you don't know. So it'll never happen. You'll never be able to operate on a biblical principle you never knew because you weren't in the word. You'll never be able to apply the truth you haven't discovered. So as you feed the word of God into your mind, into your heart, it becomes this handle by which the Holy Spirit guides and directs us. The greatest example of this, and we reference it often, is Jesus being tempted in the wilderness in the Gospels. Three times does Satan try to be the victor coming at him and trying to win in his life. This is Jesus, the Son of God. All of these are kind of ironic in their nature, but Satan comes at him anyway, and he's tempted for 40 days. And three times, first one, and I'm not going to go through this in length, hunger. He tempts Jesus with hunger. He's fasting for 40 days, and he says, you can have food, and, and why don't you just turn these breads, this stone into bread, and why don't you have food here? And he tempts him with the immediate quick fix. And what does Jesus reply? My food is different. God's food, it's spiritual. You don't understand it. He quotes Old Testament scripture a truth that he applied in that temptation. The second one, Satan tempts him with, with trusting God. You could just go to the top of this mountain, just dive, just, just God will save you, the angels. And he says, what? what does the scripture say? Don't test God. He fights that temptation with a specific scripture. The last one, Satan brings him to the top of the mountain, looks over all the kingdoms of the world. He says, you could have all this material wealth, which is ironic, right? Because Jesus left the highest position. And Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And what does Jesus say? My desire is to do the, the will of the Father. He tempts him in every way, and he combats that with an Old Testament scripture, a pointed way. Jesus answered the temptation three times. He quotes directly from the Old Testament. And as a Christian, it is the capturing of biblical truth in the conscious mind that gives you capacity to defeat Satan. There is a specific scripture for this temptation. Jesus literally triumphed over the devil through the word of God as a source of victory. Now let me give you one other illustration in this that is really helpful. I love the way that John MacArthur captures this illustration. In Ephesians 6, 17, in Paul's discussion of the armor of the Christian, we find that it wraps up with this great piece of armor in verse 17. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
This is a tremendous text here about spiritual battle. Now he says, this final piece of armor in your spiritual battle in Ephesians 6 is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now when you think of a sword from a Roman soldier, what do you think of? You think like me, some giant five-foot thing that you can just swing around and you can lift this thing and it's heavy and you can take the Bible and you can just swing and like chop off the head of a demon somewhere. That's what you think of, right? But that is not the word that's used here in Hebrews 4.12 or in Ephesians 6.17. The Greek word is romphia. This Greek word for sword that is used here is makira. And makira refers to a small dagger. That's what's referred to here. The sword of the Spirit is not some great giant the biggest King James Bible I could find, and when I whip it across the room, it will knock people over. That is not what it's saying here. It's saying this is a small dagger, the sword of the Spirit. It's short. It's incisive. It is designed to hit a vulnerable spot, or it doesn't do any damage. That's the word that was chosen here. It is not something general, but specific. Pair that with this thing. The word word here is not the word logos, which we know in the scriptures, logos is this general word. The Bible is the logos. Christ is the logos. A general word is logos. When the Bible wants to speak of something specific, it uses the word rhema, and that's what's used here along with makira, the dagger. It means the sword of the Spirit is a specific statement of the word of God that meets the specific point of temptation. Back to Jesus' example, it was specific. Satan tempted him in a certain way. He used a small dagger, a word from the Old Testament that was specific towards that temptation. People say, well, I have the sword of the Spirit. You say, I have the giant five-foot devil slayer. I own a Bible. Listen, you could have a Bible warehouse and not have the sword of the Spirit. You could have that. You could have every Bible and any translation in any size, pocket or otherwise, large, and you wouldn't have the sword of the Spirit over temptation. Because having the sword of the Spirit is not owning a Bible, but knowing the specific principle in the Bible that applies to the specific point of temptation. And the only way you'll know victory in the Christian life is to know the principle of the Word of God to make that application from that specific point where Satan attacks, where the flesh attacks, where the world attacks. You need the dagger. You don't need some devil slaying sword. You need the dagger. And as you fill yourself up with the word of God, it becomes a source of victory because the Bible is the source of truth. It is a source of joy. And it is a source of victory. That's the first three. And the fourth one is this. It is a source of growth. It says there in Hebrews 4.12 that the Bible is what? Living and active. It is a source of growth. You know, one of our greatest struggles, for those of you that know Josiah, one of our greatest struggles with him has always been, since day one, it has been his growth. That was one of the greatest struggles. Carrie and I will go take him to the doctor, and they'll weigh him, and just little victories along the way, but it's always been his growth. He's smaller for what you would consider he'll be seven soon, and he's smaller. It's always been his growth, and cognitively, as he has grown, his brain hasn't grown in the way, and things that he does, and 
God be praised, he does things and he takes these little things that he works so hard in and he grows in small ways, but it's always been a struggle. It's hard to watch and I get emotional. Even as Bella said that just the other day, she said, why is it so hard for him to do that? And it's sad to watch him work so hard and not grow. For so many of us, in many ways, it's so easy for us to grow, right? And it's just so hard for him to grow in in the things that he does. But you know what else is sad? To see Christians that don't grow. That is just as sad. To see Christians who are claiming Jesus, who are following Jesus, but who are lazy and they just don't grow. They come to church every Sunday and they just don't grow because they don't get in the Word. They come into the church with their little thimble-sized cup and they have it all filled up for their week or for whatever it is, And they come in and they fill that up and all that was great and they spill it all on the way out in the parking lot. And they just go through the week. Apart from God's word, apart from his people, apart from serving, apart from going on a life of mission and nothing ever happens. And that is sad. Peter talks about this in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for spiritual milk. Why? That you may grow. You should long for that. In other words, the Word is a source of growth. He wants, we want it to be living and active. It is living and active, but if we never apply it, if we never put it in, it's not going to help us grow. I'll tell you, when I was younger as a Christian, when I was in high school, when I was middle school and then high school, and even into the first part of college, I was around the Word of God a lot. By God's grace, I grew up in a home that it was a lot It was present. I grew up in ministry in Awana even when I was little. I grew up at Christian camps and it was there. But I can tell you this, that I didn't really start to grow until I committed myself to the word, to study it, to read it. It was around me by God's grace. I had that influence, but I didn't start to really grow until I started to read it and take it in and hunger for it and memorize it. And I've told you that before. One of my greatest sources of growth this is just for me and others who apply this know it's true, has been when I memorize large chunks of Scripture. When I spend time in God's Word and it's the first thing I think about and I recite it when I wake up and it's the first thing I think about before I put my head down to sleep and I'll just say it and I'll rehearse it. That is my greatest source of growth and I'm not perfect in that. And sometimes I struggle in that. But that has been where my deepest growth has come from. And I have periods of time where I'm away from Bible study and Bible reading, even in ministry. And I'm not proud of that. That is sad when I'm too lazy to do that. And when that happens, my growth stunts. Why? Because the Word is a life giver. It's a sustainer. It's a life builder. It's tremendous nourishment. If I go away from the food that Jesus said, this is the food for your soul, then I will be famished, and I will not grow. And so at the end of Second Peter, after he's given, Peter has given this tremendous statement about, listen to this, he's given this tremendous statement about the collapse of the universe. He's talked about the elements melting, fervent heat, and all those other things. He said how it's all going to come down in a crash. He's talking about all this stuff, world falling in on itself. And he says, so what should we do? The world is falling apart. And many of us would say that's what it's doing right now. And so what should you do? And this is what he says. We should grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should grow. All the stuff's caving in on you. What should you do? You should grow. Why? Because God wants us mature. 
He wants us built up. He wants us healthy. And what happens when the believer doesn't grow? Lots of things. Don't have time to talk all of them. None of them good. Temptation overcomes. You won't be leading in the church. You won't be leading in your home. Your kids will suffer. Your marriage will suffer. Your work will suffer. Your relationships will suffer. And if that's not bad enough, you lose your way in a world of all kinds of falsehoods. All that we've been talking about in the series. Listen, I said it weeks ago. I'll say it again. Satan is not going to use the blatantly obvious things in your life, the very fleshly things that he wins in you all the time. He's not going to use that to ruin you. Your flesh does that yourself. Whatever your idol is, whatever your temptation, whatever your struggle, you know what it is. He's not going to use that thing. He is going to use large worldly systems of falsehood, systems clothed in light. He is in the church helping the church spread heavy doses of a false gospel. He is in the church working to to push false teaching out into the world. He is in the church. He is in Christian bookstores and all the garbage that sits on its shelves that, that look like good stuff. And if you've gone to a Christian bookstore, I hope you've gone through and there's some good things in there, but there's some things that you look at and go like, what is this doing in here? This is heresy. This is terrible. Satan is working in a bigger way. He is at the theater with popcorn at the opening of the movie The Shack. Do I need to say anything else on that or was that blatant enough? Do I need to say any more? The deceiver is working in all of these false things that the Christians are just eating up. The devil is at work in politics and driving a wedge between people like no other. Satan is with us on social media enjoying our selfies and the worship and idolatry of ourselves. Look at me. He is with us when we post. the. Again, friends, I'm not perfect at this, but I'm just reminding us of what's at play here. He is with us when we're on social media posting. He is with us when we're snapping a picture of ourselves and we're looking back for all the approval that people have given to that picture. And don't lie to me right now and tell me you don't check back for all those likes. He's with us. Are people affirming me? Am I worshiping myself enough? He is with us, tearing us down in all of that kind of stuff. Think about it. And believers that don't grow, don't see it, aren't maturing past this kind of stuff. And it's not just bad that these things are harmful and destructive. It's more alarming when immature spiritual infants don't see that they are, which is why we need to grow. The characteristic of a spiritual child is according to what we read in Ephesians 4.14, and we read that last week, is not being tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, cunning, these things that people say, these are good for you. Spiritual babies have trouble with false doctrine. Spiritual maturity, on the other hand, knowing your Bible so that you can know, if it's not in here, we don't want to be a part of it. Remember, attitude fruits as well. They know that doctrine of the Bible so that they can keep themselves from false doctrine so that Satan doesn't appeal to them all. They'll be able to dismiss harmful things and avoid them when they know it's not right. And sometimes we need help in that, and I'm not great at that all the time. So I just, I just know that I can lose my way, and we'll talk about the other three things next week. But spiritual and godly and mature believers who grow don't just know the Bible, and this is key here. They know the source of the Bible. You could, again, you could keep every commandment. And the beautiful thing about the story in the gospel, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he lists all the relational commandments. He says, I've kept them all, Jesus. And he says, go and sell it all. He's checking his heart. 
He says, yes, you've been religious and, and perfect in this book, but you have not known the source behind those words. And those who know the Bible know the one who's behind the words. How? Through trusting and obeying what the book says, through learning and soaking it all in. Because when you do that, you begin to get a taste of who God is. You begin to plumb the depths of the mind of the eternal God, and you begin to stretch towards a spiritual father walking in the presence of the Holy One. And so let me ask you this. Do you know the God of the Bible? I'm not asking you if you know the Bible. But do you know the God of the Bible because you know the Bible? Are you getting to know him? Are you experiencing him through the word? Are you growing? Listen, you cheat yourself if you stay a spiritual infant. You cheat yourself if you stay a baby. You've got to get to the place where you can begin to walk in the presence of the God of the universe where you touch the person himself. And that's the ultimate end of growth. When you study the word, it becomes a source of growth, just like it's a source of truth, just like it's a source of joy, just like it's a source of victory. Charles Spurgeon said this, every Christian should study the Bible till his blood is bibbling. Whatever your blood type is, every Christian should study the Bible till your blood is bibbling. That's what your blood should be. It should flow through your body because it's living and active. It's your source of growth. It's your source of victory. It's your source of joy. It is a source of truth. And so what can we do? Get involved with people that study the Bible. Get involved with one of our D groups. We call them D groups because it's just not the Bible, but applying the Bible, checking that attitude stuff in our hearts to grow in the word. Sit under godly teaching if you're not from this church, from other places that use the Bible in its context. Read biblical books. Listen to biblical things. Be careful because this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. The writer of Hebrews speaks of the word of God as a dynamic, sharp, cutting dagger able to read our hearts. And these descriptions point to the fact that God uses the word to reveal unbelief and disobedience that lurks in our hearts. And it says in verse 13 there, all things are transparent to God. No one can hide from them. And so he uses this living and piercing word to search us deep within, to show us thoughts and intentions that are displeasing to him. So let us, in response avail ourselves to the vital ministry of Scripture through Bible reading, through Bible study, through Bible meditation, through Bible memorizing, through sitting under teaching that deepens our understanding of God's Word. Let us be creatures of it until our blood is bibbling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. We praise you that you are a life giver, that you have said things to us through your word that are true, that are life-giving for our growth. You have said things in your word that have allowed us to overcome sin and temptation in our own hearts. You have said things in your word that reveal our hearts, intentions, and thoughts that reveal falsehoods about us, reveal our pride in us, reveal things that aren't true in us so that we could know you better and that you could humble us. Father, that we could make much of you, 
that as we've said through this whole series, that we could, we could say God is for God and I want to be about God too. I want to give him all glory and praise in my life. Father, you have given us this sharp, cutting dagger tool to fight specific temptation. You've given us this word to encourage our hearts so that we would have joy amidst sorrow of which there is much sorrow in this life. Father, we wait and long for when Jesus will return or when we will meet him first. Father, we wait for that because we live in a world full of trial and tribulation and heartache and losing things and losing people close to us. And Father, we struggle, but you are the great source of joy. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your love. But Father, now help us as a people to walk faithfully, to be patient, to walk towards you. Father, if there was one in this room that doesn't know you today, that they would take a step of obedience towards you, surrendering their life and trusting in their heart by faith that Jesus has died and forgiven and rise from the dead so that they could have new life. Father, that we would go all in as those disciples and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to grow with him. I want to know the author of life. I want to know the author of the words of this book. I want to walk with him intimately. So help us do that, God, whatever that is. If we're not in a Bible study, that we would join one. If we're not involved weekly in fellowship, that we would make a commitment towards that. Father, if we we have falsehood in our lives, reveal it to us. Father, may we know your word so well that it changes us, that it's in our, our veins. Father, help us to grow. Help us to follow Jesus, and we pray these things in his name and all God's people said. I'll leave you with this from 2 Thessalonians 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happening among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Have a blessed day and go in peace.